Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I'm so delighted to say that today we will be in conversation with the legendary Howardina Pindell. But before we start, I'm so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's divine comedy with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners, they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week, their founder, Rosh Matani, will be giving us an insight into Alighieri, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to continue to work with Katie as she enters into the fifth season of The Great Women Artists. It's so wonderful to be able to grow a friendship born out of the pandemic and really highlights everything I love about Alighieri, creating meaningful and interesting dialogues that are long lasting through objects of art. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I couldn't be more excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is one of the most esteemed and trailblazing artists today, the phenomenal Howardina Pindell. Working across a variety of mediums from painting to film and who has employed a range of unconventional materials such as glitter to talcum powder. Since the late 1960s, Howardina Pindell has examined a wide range of subject matter from the personal, historical, political and social for her highly important and activistic like work that deals with racism, feminism, violence and exploitation. Born in 1943 in Philadelphia, Pindell first studied painting at Boston University and later Yale University, and upon graduating, accepted a job in the Department of Prints and Illustrated Books at the Museum of Modern Art, where she remained for 12 years from 1967 to 1979. A co-founder of the pioneering feminist AIR Gallery, Pindell is also a professor of the State University of New York Stony Brook, where she has been since 1979. Renowned early works include her mesmeric and labour-intensive pointless paintings of the 1970s, created by spraying paint through a template, and Free, White and 21, a video made in 1980 in which the artist plays herself and, wearing a mask, a white woman, whose conversation relays Pindell's own experiences of racism, which was first shown at an artist Anna Mendieta's curated exhibition at AIR in 1980. Currently the subject of a major exhibition right now at New York's The Shed, a show examining the violent historical trauma of racism in America and the therapeutic power of artistic creation. Other recent museum solo exhibitions have included at the MCA Chicago, Rose Museum, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, as well as an upcoming exhibition at Kettle's Yard in Cambridge. 
Pindale has also featured in landmark group exhibitions such as the touring Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 1985 at the Brooklyn Museum, and WAC, Art and the Feminist Revolution, among many, many others. Addressing important subjects that continue to educate people around the world, when asked about her viewers in a recent interview, she said, I want them to look at the hidden history instead of the history we were taught. And that is why we are so lucky to have her work out on the world stage. And I couldn't be more delighted to be speaking with her today. Howardina Pindell, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm okay. <laughs> Relative to what's happening in the world, I'm okay. Well, it's good to be speaking with you and hopefully we can kind of divert our mind for an hour or so. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's such an honour to speak to you and my congratulations on your current show at The Shed. Thank you. The reviews have been phenomenal. I just wish the pandemic would end so I would be able to visit. (laughs) I can't go myself because of the pandemic. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, my doctor doesn't want me to go there. But you have been? I've had a virtual tour. Oh, my goodness. And then the show ends April 11th. So we're hoping enough of COVID has been suppressed, so to speak, that I can go. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I really hope that you do get to because, I mean, I've looked at it virtually as well and it just looks absolutely phenomenal. I mean, my congratulations. (laughs) I've been lucky enough to see so much of your work here at Victoria Miro Gallery in London. And every time I see your work, I'm just struck by its diversity, beauty, historical impact and power. I mentioned in the introduction, you employ a great deal of different mediums. So I'd just love to start off by asking you, why have you chosen to work in such a wide ranging mediums for your work so far? And just to let our audience know, due to Pindell's memory issues, she has prepared some of these answers in advance and will be reading some from her notes. I go where my muse takes me. I was trained as an academic conservative painter in Philadelphia, where I grew up. My undergraduate education at Boston University was also conservative and figurative. Graduate school at Yale University School of Art and Architecture opened my eyes to an interesting set of options, including abstraction, hard edge, and pop art. I started using video film for three works later in my life, depending on the work I wanted people to learn when viewing an issue-related work. I wanted them to feel peaceful and happy in front of abstract work, which allows your eyes to wander. I love using color in the abstract work, often related recently to colors in nature, such as the color of water. The issue-related work often uses text to clarify my point. Yes, in some of my works, I share what I have learned and hope others will learn from the work as I did in researching it. I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, you know, this this great quote of yours, which was from a recent interview. I want them to look at the hidden history instead of the history we were taught. I mean, how do you want people to feel in front of your work? Well, I want them to feel a sense of relief when they see the abstract work. (laughs) I know after some of my issue related work can be very gruesome, but I want them to feel both empowered through knowledge and moved by beauty so that that the interface is there at the shed because there are new abstract paintings and then there are two issue related paintings plus the film which are pretty hard-hitting so i'd love to go back to your beginnings you were born in philadelphia in 1943 tell me about your upbringing was art something that was always present in your life well it's interesting i was an only child born to older parents 
Education was a strong focus in the household. My mother's degree was in history and geography. She was a third grade teacher who in her early years taught teachers how to teach in segregated schools. She taught young African-American teachers in places called Wilberforce, named after an abolitionist, and it's now Wilberforce University in Ohio, which was attended by Leontine Price, the opera singer. She also was at Bowie, Maryland, which is now a state university. It is also an African-American university with a diverse body. It's not an African-American university. Wilberforce is more African-American. It's interesting how, Adina, I live on a Wilberforce road. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Because I've only heard that word here. And you don't hear yeah. it at, at all. But it was a word from the past during the segregated schools and training of black teachers. That's really interesting. Oh, my God. Anyway, my parents had reproductions of art in the house including a very corny painting of a deer in the forest in the snow, which is more like an illustration, and a 3D reproduction of a painting by Van Gogh. I loved the Van Gogh and would get up on the desk and run my hands over the 3D surface. The painting was of wheat fields. I think they were crows. My father was the main energy in terms of encouraging me about my work. He was motivated to drive me to Saturday art classes and to buy my art supplies. My elementary school teacher, third grade, I was eight years old, Mrs. Osher, told my parents that I was talented in art and encouraged them to enroll me in Saturday classes. They did everything she said. That is, they took me to a museum, the main museum in Philadelphia, which is, is quite a good museum. They introduced me to artists, both black and white artists, male and female. Uh, but there weren't that many galleries. I don't remember there being any galleries. At eight years old, I attended the Flasher Art Memorial for drawing classes and continued different Saturday programs until I went to Boston University's School of Fine and Applied Arts. I was the youngest student in the Flasher Art Memorial drawing class. I can remember walking in and all these kind of adult kids, you know, I'm eight and they're 12. <laughs> I remember that. Fantastic. Okay. So, I mean, you studied figurative painting at Boston in the 1960s. I mean, what was your experience here like and what were you experimenting with at this point? Well, Boston was a very conservative city, like really conservative. It still is. And the art school had a quota of one black student a year. I remember an Asian student in my class, but the rest were mainly white women and a a few white men. At this point, I just did my drawing and painting classwork. Early on, there were design classes that introduced me to collage. In later years, I realized that my collages were really good. When I (laughs) made them, I felt totally out of my element. Figurative painting was just there as the thing I was learning. I was barely aware of abstraction. The school was anti-abstraction, even though abstract expressionist Franz Kahn attended the school a number of years ago. They refused to talk about him. And when I got into Yale, they refused to talk to me. Basically, oh yeah, basically saying that I would stop being figurative and that abstraction was a bad thing. So between 1965 and 1967, you earned your MFA painting in Yale. I mean, you were studying under Joseph Albers. I mean, what was this experience like? Well, Joseph Albers actually had left because he had a big fight with the school, but his course remained intact and was taught by one of his protégés, Cy Silman. At Yale, I was exposed to photography, 
abstraction, hard-aged painting, and it's to some extent pop art. My work gradually changed, and I feel the biggest influence was Albert's color course, which the artists and architects took together. That's one thing. It's interesting. Now Yale has split all of the departments, so architects have their own building, painting and printmaking, they have their own building, sculpture, their own building. So I, I really think that the mix was very good when we were art yeah. and architecture in the same building. But now wow. everything's been, you know, separated. Anyway, my work became abstract after I graduated and could no longer have natural light. I was influenced by Larry Poon's use of ellipses. I was also influenced before that, while I was at Yale, by one of my classmates, Nancy Murata, who started working with the circle, which jogged a memory of the circles used during segregation to mark utensils, dishware, and glassware to be used by non-whites. After I graduated, I had a day job working at the Museum of Modern Art, which meant I could not work with natural light at night. I turned to abstraction as a result. I also had access to the vast visual library of the museum's collection, which I'm sure influenced me. I would go to the galleries to view the collection on days when the public was not there. Oh, wow. So when did you start to begin with punching holes? Okay, this is interesting. (laughs) I have no idea why I started punching holes, to tell you the (laughs) truth. But anyway, (laughs) my work changed gradually. I was, as mentioned earlier, attracted to the circle. I started for some reason, I really cannot remember the reason, (laughs) punching dots and sprayed through the templates, acrylic with water tension breaker onto unstretched, unprimed canvas. I worked large, the largest being about 12 feet. I also did ink washes over crayon ovals and squares on graph paper. I sprayed veils of dots one over the other. I exhibited some of the spray works at Victoria Miro Gallery in London in the summer of 2019. Minimalism, I felt, was a gestureless movement with lots of fabricated work. It was as if they wanted to remove the gesture of the human hand. At one point, I made a funny and strange comment about the grid, which is an iconic image in minimalism. By making a portable grid about 12 by 12 feet, it was held together in a grid formation by grommets and rings. I think that the drawings were very beautiful. Beauty seems to be an important aspect of my work. That may be partly the influence of the feminist movement as I started using unorthodox materials such as, as you mentioned earlier, glitter and powder, etc. I thought not so much that they were minimalist, but thought of them as transcending the mundane circle clustered dots, sprayed in something of beauty that lifted one up out of the daily humdrum of life. I began numbering the dots, which I did not throw out after, I'm like a pack rat, anyway, which I did not throw out after making the templates to spray through. An art dealer from Cincinnati, Ohio visited me and asked me how many dots were there, meaning on the painting. So I, it inspired me to number the punch dot distritus and started to sprinkle them on 100% rag mouse that I was given by the frame shop at work. It was something they threw out. I believe playfulness is what is often behind my abstract work. I like repetitive processes. Absolutely. So you worked as a museum curator at MoMA from 1967 to 1979. I mean, tell us about your route here. (laughs) When I was at Yale, I worked in the Garvin Collection, 
I did not do anything of importance. The person in charge was one of my art history teachers, Jules Prown. He was assisted by Graham Hood from England, who later became a museum director. Art history was my minor. My working at MoMA was an amazing set of circumstances. I had a membership. I wanted to use the bathroom at the Modern as I wandered around the city looking for a job. I ended up on whim going to the business entrance of the museum and asked if I could go to the personnel office. One thing led to another. Someone had just quit a job, and I was a perfect fit for it in the long run. I worked at the museum for 12 years. I ended up in the Department of Prints and Drawings and Illustrated Books, and later the department became Prints and Illustrated Books as drawings were split off to become its own department. There was like a coup within the museum, and the director of drawings and prints wanted to be head of everything. He wanted to be head of drawings and prints, painting <laughs> and sculpture, and it would create a kind of revolution. And the people in painting and sculpture got really angry and threw him out. So he was then sent back downstairs. He became head of drawings. Anyway, I was then later in that department restructured under a different director who was a very difficult person. I was now prints and illustrated books and not drawings. My titles went from exhibition assistant to curatorial assistant to assistant curator to associate curator. <laughs> I was also acting director of the department when the chairman was away. I feel that being in the presence of such amazing art had to have influenced me. One influence came from an exhibition which they had of African textiles and decorative arts in 72-73. And in 73, Lowry Sims, African-American who was working at the Met, and I went to Africa for two months and visited wow. different nations. You know, I would wander around in the galleries on days, you know, when this, the public wasn't there. So I was like soaking up so much. Because of some racial issues, I was, I was not invited to the inside party, so I had studio time. One example was a woman named Marie Frost who would go to South Africa during Appletide and give a party to show us her photographs, but I was not invited. There would be petty stuff like that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. There were also some people who were very kind to me, like Carolyn Lansner, who's a dear friend who's recently deceased. She is the person who introduced me to Joan Mitchell when I was <gasps> in Paris. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I remember there were <laughs> protests against the modern, the Whitney and the Met. Various groups, including a somewhat diverse group, the Art Workers Coalition, was picketing the museum, as well as a group called GAG. There were also white women's groups who picketed who tried to get me to come downstairs and picket with them. I refused because I could not pay my bills if I got fired. Yeah. I also picketed the museum twice when we started a union pasta moment. We first walked out because they fired all the women who were about to be vested after so many years of service. My starting salary at the Modern was 5000 a year and a $5 raise in two years. <laughs> Yep. Oh, I, my God. Uh, unbelievable. I feel that minimalism was the main focus at the time. Non-minimalist and minimalist artists praised were Jasper Johns, Rauschenberg, Jim Dine, Liechtenstein, Al Held, Chuck Close, Dorothy Rockbillen was also in the mix, Solowit, Agnes Martin. They were at the top of the food chain. Leo Costelli Gallery was at the top of the gallery food chain along with Paula Cooper. Paula Cooper had an inside track as she seemed to be the only dealer invited to private museum court curatorial gatherings. Soho was the center of the artwork for galleries, artist lofts, 
along with East and West 57th Street galleries, not living spaces, and Madison Avenue. Wow. And I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, you were one of the co-founders of the AIR Gallery, along with Nancy Sparrow, Harmony Hammond, Sylvia Slay, etc. Just for our audience, AIR Gallery was founded in 1972 in New York and was the first female artist cooperative gallery in the US, created with the objective of providing professional and permanent exhibition space for women artists during a time when really work shown at commercial galleries in New York were almost exclusively dedicated to male artists. I mean, what attracted you to join this and what was your experience here? I mean, you had your show there in 1973 and I also know that you featured in exhibitions curated by the likes of your friend Anna Mendieta. Well, you know, there was nowhere to go. Women of any color had a hard time And people of color, male and female, also had a hard time. And when I say people of color, I mean African-American, Latino, Asian, Native American. There was just no venue that they would fit us into. Anyway, very few women were being shown in the galleries. The lucky few had to be white. The child of, lover of, spouse, or of a famous white male artist. I was approached by the core group of air founders who saw my work in a slide registry at Artist Space in Manhattan. I agreed to join and name the gallery and help construct it. I had two exhibitions there, one with Harmony Hammond and one by myself. I believe that I showed my works dealing with numbers on graph paper. That was the one in 73. Um, I remember there was a white collector who would call me. He had heard about my work and started calling me at the studio and was very friendly. I knew he did not know I was not white. When he showed up at the loft with some of his friends, my loft was at the northern end of Chelsea in the Fur and Flower District. His face drained of color when he saw me coming down the stairs. He would not look at the art. He just walked around the space. My loft was 2,300 square feet. He asked for a glass of water and said to me that he had made, in quotes, a terrible mistake, and he and his friends left. What? I know. (laughs) I do not think I was reviewed. I think one white woman critic was hostile, but I cannot remember if it was a passing comment in a review. There was tension as I was the only person of color in AIR. Anna Mendeata joined after I left. I did propose my lynching piece as a performance piece, but they turned it down. The version of it currently at the Shed in Manhattan is a video film called Rope Fire Water, which I completed in 2019 and updated in 2020. There was tension at air also because I had a day job and most of them were supported by their husbands. One of the members for years after I left would say things like, in quote, she does not know she is black. It always gets back to me, although I'm no longer a member. Wow. I don't think she's involved with the gallery anymore. But anyway, Anna Manietta put Free White and 21 in her show at air called Dialectics of Isolation. There was a catalog for that. I have no idea where I put it. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. It's probably in the library at the modern. <laughs> but anyway, it was diverse, totally diverse. Wow. Uh, yeah, she included you know, indigenous women and black women, I oh, think. Wow. Zarina Hashmi, who's from, I think she's from India or Pakistan. But anyway, I feel that there were a few nice members of AIR, like Mary Gregoriadis. Two of the early members passed away at an early age of cancer. I cannot remember their names. They were pretty nice people. Later, after I returned from a seven-month artist residency grant in Japan, I wanted a place to show the work, and Dottie Addy, a member of AIR, let me buy her showtime. That would be in the early 80s. 
Wow. There had been, I believe, a death in her family. I have more of a friendly relationship with the gallery now, which moved to Brooklyn. I would like to take out an associate membership, which was offered years ago. I got so tied up with my own worries and things that I sort of lost track of them. And I wonder how they're surviving COVID. Wow. It's all so fascinating. And then, I mean, in 1979, after you quit MoMA because of Donald Newman's unspeakable actions, later that year, you were involved in a car accident. I mean, how do these events shift your later work? I would say that I was highly motivated to leave the modern as a general Main Street attitude to the protests after abstract charcoal drawings by Donald Newman, the artist, was seen as censorship. We did not shut down the gallery. It was not seen as censorship when people of color and women were closed out of the system. I also had a very difficult boss at MoMA, and I was tired of it. I started to teach at Stony Brook in September of 1979. Stony Brook is about a two-hour each-way commute. The chairperson, Donald Cuspit, lived near me. It's a famous critic. So he would drive me to school. The day of the accident, a white woman art critic went out with us to school to see my show, which was shown in the gallery. The gallery had been designed by Lawrence Alloway, the art historian, critic and museum curator. It was very large with high ceilings. We were 20 minutes from school when we were hit on the diagonal by a large car that drove across the medium strip into oncoming traffic. Wow. The driver was an ex-nun, so we called it an act of God. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I was in the back seat sitting sideways, which saved my life as I would have broken my pelvis. I had a concussion, a neck injury, and a hip injury. One leg was higher than the other. I was saved from having a broken skull by a thick woolen hat that a friend from MoMA, an intern, had knit for me. My work after that turned to autobiography, work about issues, and I would say to myself, I should express myself. And my concerns, you never know, you may wake up dead. A grim thought. Yeah. Wow. And so, I mean, then in 1980, you created Free White in 21. I mean, can you tell us about this work? And, you know, were you expecting the reaction that it has had and the impact that it's had on history? I should at the time. People did, you know, felt insulted by it. Wow. And now, I mean, it's being shown in Germany. One of the German curators came to the gallery and she was just very excited about the work. It was in an exhibition there and she wanted me to come to Germany. I hate flying. so <laughs> You managed said, to come no. to London a few years ago. I was lucky enough I to did. see your oh. talk. <laughs> it's interesting getting me onto an airplane. Oh my gosh. Now, I, I didn't want to go near an airplane, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of fed up with the white women's movement as they were not concerned about censoring out people of color, especially women of color. They expected us to be there for them, but they were not there for us. I tell a series of true stories and play two parts in the video as myself and an odd-looking white woman with white stage makeup, a blonde wig, and sunglasses from my younger days. There is a back and forth between me and the character of the white woman. The stories are about experiences of racism. One example being denied access to an advanced class in history in high school because I was not white. At one point, I wrapped my head in white gauze, which I feel represents the head injury in the car accident. The initial reaction by whites was hostility. It was entered into a jury video contest and was turned down because they said it was too divisive. It was first shown in Anna Mendieta's Dialectics of Isolation at Air. 
The exhibition was about the work of diverse women artists of color. There was basically silence in reaction to the exhibition, although we hear more about the exhibition now. It was shown next soon after at Franklin Furnace in Tribeca, and the reaction was more confusion and anger. When I was about to show it at a new gallery on 57th Street, the Cyrus Gallery, the critic demanded that I remove it from the exhibition. When I refused, she demanded the gallery director remove it from the exhibition. She, he would not. She has now not spoken to me since. The exhibition received the College Association Award for the Best Exhibition or Performance for 1989. When my traveling exhibition had a venue in an art school in Ohio, the tape was stolen from the exhibition. The director of the gallery was threatened and his photography equipment was stolen. They threatened to beat him up. I was also receiving harassing phone calls at home from what sounded like art students. It was also attacked in Atlanta where the show traveled by whites who said that my show was hostile to whites. That also included my painting about Columbus and the fact that he cut off indigenous people's hands, the Arawak and the Taino. He also sent the indigenous people back to Europe to be sold as slaves. The white Atlanta public did not want to hear about it. There was a brief article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The show stayed open and was not shut down. The tape was shown to a mostly white student at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont, I was there as a visiting artist. After it was shown, a young white female student stood up and said sarcastically, do you feel better now? The video has been shown often since I made it and it is still shown now. I receive praise for it now as being a work that is still timely. It was recently projected extra large, actually huge. Wow. Uh, on, <laughs> on the outside wall of the Brooklyn Museum. Oh my gosh. The current unsettled times has made it more timely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just phenomenal work. I mean, but then in the 1980s, I mean, you embarked on your autobiography series. I mean, could you tell us about these? As a result of the accident and the injuries, I decided to do a series that was autobiographical as well as issue-related, as I could combine figurative as well as abstract elements as well as text. The tape Free White and 21 was sort of a gateway piece. I started to look at old postcards that I was sent or had collected to jog my memory because of the head injury. I would cut and split postcards and fan them along two-dimensional and three-dimensional heavy archival paper or archival thin boards. I also started a series of paintings that were a mixture of autobiography and issues, putting my body on the canvas, lying down, and tracing it, and then cutting it back out and sewing it. One of the first of the series had to do with trips to India. I've traveled a lot. Wow. Uh, not not anymore, but I travel a lot. <laughs> Did you take planes? <laughs> no. Well, 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 I hate airplanes and COVID, you know. just I don't want to be somewhere and I can't get back home. You know? Did you ever take a boat to anywhere? <laughs> uh, that's another story. I was in a boat across... Uh, let's see. I was living in Sweden, and I decided to take the student boat home, and we got caught in a Caragordi 3 hurricane in the middle of the Atlantic. There were 60-foot waves and 125-mile-an-hour winds. I cannot tell you how horrible it was. And that went on for three days, and we finally hit clear weather. We were blown off course by three days. And I, it's amazing to me that we didn't capsize. Yes, it was shocking and horrible. I mean, I've been on a flight that's been hit by lightning. You know, I mean, I've had, 
I've been on a, one plane coming from Rio where the, one of the engines was loose on the wing over the Amazon jungle. So, I mean, I, I feel <laughs> my nine lives are Stay up. Stay in Manhattan. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, God. Anyway. Yeah, so tell us about your autobiography series. These are an incredible group of works created between mainly 1980 and 1995 following the crash, which really reflect both your physical healing, but also encourage self-discovery. I also started a series of paintings that were a mixture of autobiography and issues, putting my body in the painting by portraying it. One of the first in the series had to do with trips to India, where I learned that years ago, and still in remote areas, women are burned alive on their husband's funeral pyre. It is called sati. Our young women hated to marry old men because that sealed their fate. It was a belief that was part of the Hindu religion. It started off as women walking around the husband's funeral pyre. But apparently, with time, the greediness of some of the relatives, she had to die and they would get her property. If you see a hand traced and carved on the side of a Hindu temple, it is the hand of a woman who has been satied. It's considered to be a divine and holy act. It was outlawed by the British during their occupation of India. But as mentioned earlier, it is still practiced in remote areas. Some of the autobiography pieces contain tracings of my body. I traced my body for sati and sewed it back in. It is a memory from the car accident when a policeman, in terms of burning, when a policeman, I'm surprised a white policeman, was able to pull me out of the car that they fear would blow up and catch fire. Wow. I mean, it's an incredible piece with so much depth. I really urge everyone to look up these works and I'll share them in the show notes. Can you tell us about family ghosts and what this imagery signifies? Family ghost is about my ancestors before I did my DNA search. My standing figure is standing on the heads of my relatives from the distant past. There is a bullet-like shape on the left which shows the cargo hold of a slave ship. There is text that states the rights of slave owners and gives the slave owner the right to kill the husband on the spot if he in any way objects. Above my head is the head of a dark-skinned, beautiful woman who represents my first female ancestor on my mother's side. Apparently, all of our first ancestors are from Africa. According to a DNA done by National Geographic's Genome Project, my first female ancestor was in Africa 80,000 years ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous. And I did try to get my father's DNA from like a licked envelope and they couldn't get enough DNA from it. He had already passed and we had thrown out his hairbrush and his toothbrush. And so in the 2000s, I mean, you know, we've seen from your fantastic Shed exhibition, you've returned to this kind of minimalist-like works. I mean, how is it now revisiting this time? I mean, I can see from the work behind you that it's such an incredible play on what you did in the 70s. Actually, I see the new pieces as different from the earlier. As the earlier one, the dots were limited by the size of a hole puncher. I can buy hole punchers now that are three inches in diameter. (laughs) The works are larger and more playful than the earlier pieces because I have now more options. I did not feel as if I was revisiting the earlier work. I felt it like it was the next step after the earlier work. I would love to do more of them. There is a possible commission that has to do with stained glass. And I want to make a piece, you know, and go back to the small dots, but kind of a mixture of the two. 
So much of your work has such rich histories to them and are incredibly dense and complex. And I'd love to ask you about some of your new paintings, which are on view at the shed and start with the painting, which you titled Columbus, an extremely powerful work with text written on it, which deals very much with the truthful legacy of the explorer. The two paintings, Columbus and the Four Little Girls, I created at the same time. The Columbus painting has over a hundred hands cut out of rice paper and inlaid with black acrylic on the canvas. We cast silicone hands and placed them at the base. Children's hands were cut off not only under Columbus, who dismembered babies, but also in the Belgian Congo. A lot of wealthy families made great profits from the stealing of the resources of other countries and tried to pretty it up by funding culture in their own countries. Africa is one of the richest countries in the world because of their wealth of natural resources. They are very poor because of massive theft and destruction of their people. And can you tell us about the Four Little Girls painting? The Four Little Girls is about the four children who died in the bombing at the Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, during the Civil Rights Movement, which was 1963. The killers were prosecuted in the 1970s. The paintings also show a list of black churches that were burned and black towns that were destroyed by whites. Bodies of the victims were in some cases put in mass graves or thrown into the river. Thank you, Howardina. These are all such incredible pieces of work which tell such powerful and important stories. And what is incredible about your career now is how much recognition you have been getting in recent years. I mean, such as your huge retrospective at the likes of MCA Chicago or your inclusion as Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, which I was lucky enough to see at Tate Modern, which toured across America. We wanted a revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 85. I mean, how do you feel about all this recognition? I am shocked by all the recognition I've been getting. For years, my work was in some cases mocked or even not taken seriously. I'm a bit numb. The fame has not registered with me. I was used to at times getting it from both sides. Early on, the African-American community rejected abstraction and the white community rejected you no matter what you did. Issue-related work was scorn, that is within the white art world, and work by women was overlooked. Some of them left people, or rather women of color out. So I am a bit in shock by all the support. The past four years have been a wake-up call for many of us here in the U.S., as we saw democracy and gains and civil rights slipping away, it is a great relief for many of us to see the possibility of repairs being made to our country and its people. I am thrilled to see so many artists of color being shown. Some of the galleries are beginning to move away from exclusion or token inclusion to including more work by artists of color. In fact, my own gallery, Garth Brennan Gallery, has, I believe, eight indigenous First Nation artists, which is amazing just amazing. Yes, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, Garth Greenan has such a strong and important program. I mean, how have you seen the industry change in the time that you've been working as an artist? Years ago, if a white dealer started to show non-white artists, they would be attacked by other white dealers. Like there was a case, yeah, there was a case in Philadelphia where when she opened her gallery and was showing almost half of black artists, the, the uh, white dealers were angry at her and they said, no one's going to want to come into your gallery you know, if they see black people there. Another aspect was that black artists who showed negative racial stereotypes of blacks or spoke out against the civil rights movement were given a place at the table. I remember when I was working for the Modern, I was invited to be on a panel in the Virgin Islands for the uh, NEA, which is the National Endowment for the Arts. It was a public art commission jury, which was to select a sculpture, a public sculpture. 
I brought along documentation of two artists, one white, one black. I tried to present the African-American artist, and the chairman of the committee said, literally, no, no, we will have none of that. He refused to let me present the documentation for the African-American artist. This was in the 1970s. I'm grateful to both Garth Brennan Gallery and Victoria Miro Gallery for being more than positive about my work. I think The Shed is my most informative show. The film video is tough to watch. It's hard for me to watch. Very hard for me to watch. Yeah. One of my favorite paintings in the uh, Shed exhibition is titled Lash. It is titled after my great-great-grandmother on my father's side who was enslaved and blinded in one eye by a slave owner's whip. I am so glad I was able to exhibit the painting about the use of the canal system to ferry enslaved men, women, and children to Canada or to live with abolitionists in their homes along the canal. One of them is the Erie Canal. I was glad I could include iron baby shackles used on children during enslavement. The baby shackles are from a plantation in America's Georgia. I bought them from an antique store. The person who wanted to sell them had tried to open a museum about slavery and no one was interested. I want people to know the hidden history. I would like to do a painting about slavery in New York. I live near an old farmhouse that has had, once years ago, uh, seven enslaved people. It is now a museum and is located in Upper Manhattan. And what do you want people to learn from your work? I I always want people to learn from my work because I learned so much trying to put the work together and the knowledge. Some of the stuff you research is just too horrible. Yeah. Some of it's just too horrible. And, I mean, some of the research I'm doing now is looking at enslavement around the world, you know, and I'm particularly interested in, like, the Roman Empire. Yeah. Uh, The Vikings were big slave traders. And they came to the British Isles and enslaved mostly women and children and took them to Turkey. And there were slave markets in Florence and in Venice. So I want to do some research about it. There's a very good book out called The World History of Slavery. And it includes both ancient slavery as well as American slavery. But the most enslaved people in the current time are in India. Well, thank you so much, Howardina. This has just been the most insightful important and just brilliant conversation thank you so much for all your words and all your work as well but as this is the great women artists podcast we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet who would it be and what would you say to them okay okay i would like to have met alma thomas who is an african-american woman abstract artist (gasps) washington dc i was interested that she worked on some of her paintings on her kitchen table I was able to be in touch with Elizabeth Catlett while she was alive. She lived mainly in Mexico. I would also love to meet Sue Coe, a British artist who makes searing commentary, civil rights, corruption, etc. Uh, her pieces are amazing. And if you Google her, there are a lot of images of her work. And they're small and they're really intense. She has stuff about Trump also. Her things are amazing. Anyway, she is known for her drawings, prints, etc. Her work is referred to as social protest art. I would not say so much to them except to tell them how much I appreciate their work and their courage. They worked and succeeded in spite of limitations and restrictions put on them by society. But I wanted to add, there's a woman who has, I've learned so much from her. She's First Nation, 
Her name is Asiba Tubahachi. She's from the Matinapop Nation on Long Island. And she has a website which deals with issues of oppression. She had published a book about racism, gosh, back in the 70s, self-published, which she's trying to resurrect now, that I learned so much about racism from it. From the indigenous position, we're on their land. And finally, my own university is recognizing that the land that they occupy was once the land of the Setauket Indians, and that it's important that we know that we're on indigenous land. And that to me is like a huge, huge leap. I, I, I couldn't believe that. But anyway, her website is called, one word altogether, spiritofjanuary.com. Oh, wow. Yeah, spiritofjanuary.com. And I learned so much from her. I, I think she's the person that really gave me my voice. Because within the uh, African-American community, I would run into, you know, a lot of conflict because I was an abstract artist. I mean, I really, you know, I was learning from my experience in terms of the kind of racism I'd run into at work. I mean, even within the past, at least I I would say about 10 years, you know, going into a restaurant near the modern and being told that I can't stay there. Going with my father, who we were practically carrying because he refused to stop coming to New York, even though he was getting too fragile. Waiting in a movie theater in the reception area and one of the people who worked there telling us we couldn't stay there. I ran into it at my own library here. Yeah. I won't even go back there. I was working on a book and I had like a little pull and spring bottle and I didn't see any signs that said you can't drink water. And she came over with the security guard and said, if I do that again, she was going to throw me out. Oh, my God. And I've run into other problems. So it kind of goes on and on. But that's the only positive thing I can think of about COVID is I'm not running into racism. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This was just wonderful and so kind of you to be so rigorous with every single answer. Honestly, it was just fascinating. Oh, thank you. That's why I like to write it out because the memory is getting really rickety. And when I write it out, I can go back and build and build on it. Say hi to everybody, okay? I will do. Thank you so much, Howardina, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you all so much for listening to the 54th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Howardina Pindell. I am absolutely fascinated and in awe of Pindell's incredible and such extensive, wide-ranging and extremely important career and work. For those in America, Howardina's exhibition at New York's The Shed closes this month, March 28th. And as always, I have linked everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.